Mindfulness Mode 149. Immediately try to make a connection between the simple practice of becoming aware and breathing. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, I talk with people from all walks of life to discover the many ways mindfulness has impacted their lives. Thanks so much for joining us here in Mindfulness Mode. To thank you for listening, I'll send you a free copy of my book. I teamed up with author Brian Tracy, along with some other entrepreneurs, to create the best-selling book called Cracking the Success Code. You'll learn more about my story and how I became an anti-bullying advocate, which later led to mindfulness and my mindfulness coaching. Get the book free at mindfulnessmode.com cracking. Enter your name and email and you'll have your book downloaded in no time. Enjoy the book, Mindful Tribe. Last time on Mindfulness Mode, episode 148, I talked with Michelle Dutro and what an expert she is on mindset and getting to the bottom of things and taking action. That's one thing I got out of the episode. She's done a lot of different things in her life that she talks about, but the most impactful thing was that she really knows how to encourage people to take action. She inspired me, I'll tell you. Now today, we're talking with Andrea Klunder. I met her at Podcast Movement in Chicago back in July. And it was so exciting because I was I was in a room just about to hear a speaker and the person introducing the speaker said, I'm going to give various people a chance to speak and to say hi. So Andrea jumped up. She said, hi, I'm Andrea Klunder and I'm all about mindfulness. And she talked a little bit about her podcast, which is called The Creative Imposter. And I thought, whoa, I've got to connect with this energetic, outgoing lady. She seems just like the right kind of person for me to reach out to. And we chatted. I asked her to come in my podcast and little did I know what a great, interesting, inspiring story she has. She's been trained as an opera singer. She's had a yoga studio. She's done a lot of interesting things and I think you're going to love the episode. So settle in, relax and enjoy episode 149 with Andrea Klunder. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I am really excited today to have Andrea Klunder on the line. So, Andrea, are you in mindfulness mode? You bet I am. That's great. Andrea Klunder is a meditation facilitator for startup companies and creative individuals. She's the founder of Peace and Play Yoga for kiddos and grown-ups. Andrea integrates her background in music, theater, and creativity to engage her students in a playful experience of peaceful practices to help them become more mindful in their day-to-day living. Andrea is also host of the Creative Imposter Podcast, a show all about how to get out of your head and take bold action. This show deals with that inner voice which says, who do you think you are? You can't do that. Well, Andrea, finally, I met you at Podcast Movement in Chicago, and that was a great moment to meet you. And now you're on my show. So how are you today? I'm excellent and super excited to be here. Yes. So, well, let's dig right in and talk about mindfulness. You work with mindfulness tools all the time. Tell us what mindfulness means to you. Mindfulness really for me is simply being aware of my body, my breath, 
my thoughts and my emotions at any given moment so that there's a little bit of space available between whatever stimulus is coming my way and my reaction to that stimulus. Well, that's a very good definition. And I know that you you teach yoga and yoga has been a part of your life for some time. Tell us when you started becoming interested in yoga. I actually started uh, taking yoga classes when I was a 19-year-old sophomore in college who couldn't touch my toes. <laughs> I sort of... <laughs> figured I should probably be a little more flexible than that and was paying good money to have a state-of-the-art recreation center on our campus. So I had uh, started taking any fitness classes I could, exercise mm -hmm. classes, trying to find some type of exercise that I didn't hate. Mm -hmm. The only exercise I liked up to that point was playing tennis, and that's hard to schedule because you have to have a partner. Yes. And um, so I tried everything. I tried cardio. Kickboxing was really popular at the time. I tried aerobics, and I just didn't like any of it. And eventually I thought, hmm, I'll try this yoga thing. I think it's something my parents did back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really loved it, not only – was it a form of exercise that I felt better after rather than just feeling exhausted or sore or worse? I also realized that when I would go to these yoga classes, I would walk away and I would be calmer and less stressed out. And what you need to know about me is that I'm a pretty type A person. I'm very ambitious, kind of the whole overachiever, straight A student and um, going into college, I was pushing myself really, really hard. And going to these classes, I had no idea that this was a benefit of yoga, but I noticed that I would walk away from class and I would feel less stressed out about that homework that still needed to be done at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. or whatever it was. And so eventually over time, I kept going to the yoga classes and I say that it was looking for a style of exercise that I didn't hate that drew me to it but it was the mental and emotional benefits that I observed that kept me coming back time after time. Well, I was just going to ask you if meditation was part of that yoga at that time. It was, and it was like, I'm going to say a teeny tiny piece. Right. And, um, you know, being in a, a public university recreation center, that that's the type of setting where you're probably not going to be chanting sacred mantras and doing extensive meditation practice. It's framed primarily as a fitness class, but you know, there's always that Shavasana, that deep relaxation at the end, even if it's only five, 10 minutes of just laying there in silence, doing nothing. And, you know, for my very active brain, the idea of laying there doing nothing was a very novel concept. <laughs> I bet it was. And it, and it is for a lot of us. And nowadays that almost everybody is multitasking, it can even seem more so. So mm -hmm. how do you deal with our crazy world with its multitasking and everything that's going on? Well, I think that multitasking is, first of all, it's a myth. I've read studies that have shown that actually in the brain, it is quite literally impossible for your brain to focus on more than one thing at any given moment. So if you think you're multitasking, like let's say you are 
even doing something seemingly mindful, mindless, like folding laundry and also listening to your favorite podcast and also thinking about your to-do list for the next day, maybe for work or for your business or whatever. You think you're doing all three of those things at once, but what's actually happening is that your brain is switching from task to task in like these split nanoseconds of time. And every time our brain switches focus, it requires energy. It takes energy to make that change, even though we're not aware of it happening in the moment. And so when I learned that, when I heard the the research studies that show that this is what, you know, the myth of multitasking actually is, I thought to myself, well, that seems like an awful waste of energy, (laughs) which is not appealing to me. So with that knowledge... I really try to focus on the task at hand as much as possible. And I would say doing that is, is a practice. I'm not perfect at it. I you know, like to have multiple things going on at once and multiple projects that I'm working on. But if I think about everything I need to do in a day or a week or everything I want to do for my business and all of the projects that I want to do at home, I can get overwhelmed really quickly. And so just taking a step back and saying, okay, what am I focusing on right now in this moment? And really putting sort of like buckets of time into my day and into my schedule to focus on one thing at a time so that I can be clear and present and not be wasting all of this energy, overwhelming myself and switching back and forth between all of these different areas of focus. Right. That sounds like a really good strategy for sure. So it sounds like you've done a lot of things with theater and music. Can you talk about theater and mindfulness and what it's like just before you get on stage to play a role or whatever you're doing in that theater production and how mindfulness can keep you centered? Yeah, absolutely. So When I was, for a good portion of my life, I was acting and singing and performing and doing musical theater. And I think that I wasn't always as fully grounded in my yoga and meditation practice during that time as I am now. And definitely um, being in theater and being on stage and performing, especially when you're doing live performance almost forces you to be in the moment because things are happening on stage. And even if you've rehearsed, even if you've memorized all of your lines, even if you have played this character and played this scene, you know, 10 times, there's always an element of unpredictability and anything could happen at any moment. And you as the performer, you as the actor, it is your job to immediately process whatever has just happened, process that stimulus, and be able to respond almost immediately in an effective and genuine way to keep the play or the production or the performance moving forward. Right. Andrea, I want to ask you, what is the craziest, most unpredictable thing that happened when you were in a production? Completely un, un, you know, unpredictable. And, and you had to use mindfulness to deal with this surprise. 
<laughs> okay, this might be a little bit PG-13. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I was actually understudying a role in a musical in a storefront theater production in Chicago. Right. Um, the show was called The Wild Party. And uh, the character... So I was understudying and I only actually got to go on stage for one performance for the run of that show. And I had had very minimal rehearsal time, mm -hmm. like extremely minimal. Mostly I was learning my role by watching videotapes of the rehearsals or videotapes of the performances leading up to the, the show that I was actually performing in. And in this one particular scene, uh, there is a, a wild party going on and uh, one character in the scene uh, drunkenly tries to make advances on my character who is young and naive and inexperienced. And so there's a moment of staging where he is supposed to pull on my shirt and my shirt kind of comes down and then I have um, it's set in a, an earlier time period. So I have, you know, full coverage, lingerie and everything on. Sure. So this is what's supposed to happen. So in the moment on stage, he pulls the shirt, the shirt comes down and the, the bra strap of the lingerie comes with it. Oh. <laughs> and I was briefly a little more exposed uh, than expected. And in the moment, we were actually also singing in addition oh, to doing this this <laughs> staged bit of, of uh, half dance, half fight, half struggle choreography. Um, but fortunately, you know, being able to respond appropriately as the character, not as sure. me, the actor, yeah. and also you know, quickly find a way to cover myself and make myself more decent. My parents were in the audience and, you know, after the fact, they're like, you know, you did a great job, but we really didn't like that scene where, <laughs> you know? and I said, I assure you, the other actor is very kind and very respectful. That's not at all his personality, you know, but, you know, having to take care of yourself and, uh, you know, not be too shocked, but also be able to stay in the character and keep singing, uh, is a challenge. And I would say that that's, that's, a, you know, almost a metaphor for life too. Right. So unexpected things happen all the time yes. in real life. And we don't always have rehearsal for moments that are going to come up. So being able to be in that space where you're taking in your environment, you're taking in your surroundings, you're taking in what other people around you are doing you're aware of your own body, breath, mind, and emotions, and you're able to have the presence to make skillful choices moment to moment about how you're going to react or how you're going to respond. Right. Andrea, I'm wondering what age you were when you knew that music and theater were going to be part of your life. Uh, my whole life. I think my first memory of singing a solo on stage was when I was four, and I was uh, in my church. I sang a lot. I grew up learning music in my church. And uh, I believe, and, and my mom can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believed my, my first solo um, was at the mother-daughter banquet for my church. And I sang uh, Tomorrow from the musical Annie. <laughs> oh, that must have been so cute. And then you just continued and you were in, in productions as a child then? 
Yeah, I I did um, choir all through church, and we would have these little plays that we would do throughout the year. And I also got into theater in my school, as, especially as I got older and started doing plays. And uh, also did some community theater here and there. And so that was just something that was just normal for me. It was just something that I always wanted to do. And I always knew that that was going to be a big part of my life. And when did you know that you wanted to teach others? Um, so I decided when I graduated from college and I ended up, I started out college studying music and then actually changed my major completely after my freshman year and went into uh, mass communication and film and video production to learn the tech side of things. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's a, a whole long story behind that, but I won't get into that right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I changed into uh, film and video production and graduated college, moved to Chicago and Chicago, at that point, I wasn't really performing. I wasn't really doing music. I wasn't really acting. And Chicago has a huge theater scene, yes. a huge theater environment. And I just got sucked right back into it. There was so much going on and so much energy in the Chicago theater community that I just got pulled back into that passion. And at the same time, I was kind of still dabbling on and off in teaching yoga classes. So when I wasn't in a show uh, or making a film, then I would be going to yoga classes regularly. And what I discovered when I moved to Chicago was that there was a thing called a yoga studio. It seems weird, but in the year 2000, growing up in West Michigan, there, there weren't really any yoga studios that I knew of. Mm -hmm. There was only yoga classes that you would take at the gym. Okay. But then moving to Chicago, I discovered that there were whole places only dedicated to yoga. And so I started getting more into that and was just it was just something that I had to do to feel like I was sane, really. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I decided to get my yoga teaching certification when I was considering going to graduate school. So I was going to apply to go to graduate school in theater. And my roommate at the time suggested that I get my yoga teaching certification so that I could have some kind of part-time job that wasn't retail or waiting tables right. in college. Sure. And um, so I did that. And when I started doing that certification training, that's when I really started to get more into the meditation practices. So meditation was always sort of this part of the yoga practice and mm -hmm. part of the yoga classes, but it wasn't the main focus. But as I learned more about philosophy and as I learned more about some of the more esoteric practices and things like that, I realized that the the meditation practices, the breathing practices, the mindfulness practices were so key to shifting out of a stress response type mindset um, and, and being able to be more intentional and make clearer choices in the moment of my day to day and in the long term of my life trajectory. And I actually decided not to go to graduate school because I really fell in love with the idea of 
being able to share this with other people and being able to not just teach people how to be stronger or more flexible through yoga, but how to use these practices to really have happier and better lives. So you just got got right into yoga, got right into mindset. And so when someone would come to you and they're like, their mind is just so filled with, with jabber and, and craziness, how would you help them deal with that, that inner chatter? Mm-hmm. So uh, working with beginners is my absolute favorite thing to do in meditation. And what I, what I used to do in the beginning was try to talk about meditation with them a lot. We would, I would go over a lot of theory and different techniques and we would talk about the benefits of meditation and things like that. And, and that was when I was just starting out. And over time I realized that that's fine and that's interesting, but really what people need is a direct experience as soon as possible because it's, I don't think the benefits of meditation, if you just list them out in bullet points and sort of try to talk about why it works or how it works, I don't think it's as, as effective as just having a direct experience of it. So, um, what I have done in the past is a, a four week introductory series that I teach as a group and in the very beginning, as soon as possible in that first session, we just come into a seated meditation posture, either on a cushion or on a chair, whatever's most comfortable, align the spine, notice the tension in our shoulders, and then consciously release the tension in our shoulders, notice the tension in our face, consciously release the tension in our face and tune right into the breathing. And I try to keep it as short and simple as possible so that there's an immediate understanding of oh, I didn't even notice there was tension in my jaw or, oh, I didn't even notice there was tension in my shoulders. And just that brief moment of awareness of something in your body and the realization that you can make a choice to release that tension is mind blowing for people. And so is that once a week for four weeks? Yeah, that course has been once a week for four weeks. And then what I try to do is give them a challenge for the week, just something really simple that they can do. And uh, I also started implementing a Facebook group so that we could check in and say, yes, I meditated for three minutes today, or no, I didn't do it at all, or (laughs) whatever, (laughs) whatever it is, so that there's um, some level of accountability and group support throughout the week. Because what I found is if you come to class, you learn a technique, it's cool, you feel great about it, and you say, yes, I'm going to do this for five minutes every day for the rest of the week. We come back to the next week, and I say, how many of you meditated this week? And it'll be like, you know, 10% of the people will have actually done it. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. Or they will have done it the first day and then missed the rest of the week. Well, how do you get them then to make it a habit to move into that place where they will be doing it every day? That is a great question. (laughs) (laughs) And I think someone once said to me, because I would get frustrated when people wouldn't do their quote unquote homework Mm -hmm. or when people would, you know, start coming to a class, whether it be a yoga class or a meditation series And I would see them the first week, 
And then they might come the second week and then I wouldn't see them again after that. Right. And I would get really discouraged and really frustrated and feel like I was somehow doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And somebody once said to me that uh, you can't motivate other people. Motivation has to come from within. And the best thing that you can do is facilitate the curiosity and the inquiry and the open space for that person to connect with their own inner motivation. And so what I try to do now is I try to understand exactly where this person is coming from and what drew them to the idea of wanting to learn how to meditate in the first place. Because for some people it might be, I'm having high levels of anxiety and my therapist suggested it might be a good idea. Mm -hmm. For some people it's, I have a very intense job and I just need better focus. And the idea of like anxiety or stress or whatever is so far from their mind, but they're just uh, focused on productivity. For some, it might be a relationship struggle. But if I can understand what is attracting them to it in the first place and immediately try to make a connection between the simple practice of becoming aware and breathing and whatever their desired goal or desired rationale is, if I can make that connection for them, the motivation will come up internally for them. Right. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think it's true that the person has to be self-motivated. There are ways we can motivate each other, but if it doesn't come from within, wow, that's really difficult. Now, when you were talking about this and talking about the inner voice, I was wondering, then you started to answer it yourself, but I was wondering if there were times when that inner voice affected you and your teaching and your, your own personal yoga practice. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and so this is the, the topic of the podcast that I produce, right. the creative imposter, which kind of combines these elements of creativity and performance and, uh, mindfulness and meditation and also, uh, business and entrepreneurship. Those are sort of the elements that are all contained within there. And it's this imposter voice that comes up every once in a while that says, um, who do you think you are to be teaching people how to meditate? You have days that go by where you don't meditate. You know, it's like people will say, do you meditate every day? And I say, I make my best effort to meditate every day. And sometimes it doesn't happen. And sometimes people are shocked. Like, how can right. you be a meditation teacher and skip a day of meditation? And I'm like, I'm human. I'm learning and I'm practicing, <laughs> Right, right. you know, and my practice isn't always perfect. And that's okay. If I get stressed out about it, then that's defeating the point of having the, the practice in the first place. Sure. Yeah. And you know, there's definitely those times when, you know, I, I never was a particularly athletic person physically mm -hmm. in my body. Like athletics was always challenging for me. And, uh, I never throughout the course of becoming a yoga teacher, I never learned how to do a handstand, which mm -hmm. for some people doing a handstand is like a basic thing that you do in yoga. And I never have been able to do one. And, there was this part of me thinking like, how can you call yourself a yoga teacher when you can't even do a handstand? You know, the, these little voices that chime in at the most inopportune moments that threaten to sort of derail the work that you're trying to do. And in truth, 
I've been teaching yoga for almost 10 years. I have never taught someone how to do a handstand because I can't teach someone how to do something that I don't know how to do. And it doesn't matter. No, because I'm sure it doesn't. (laughs) You know, it's like my students have experienced so many profound uh, benefits and um, wonderful things by being introduced to the practice that in the end, a handstand is nothing, but sometimes your brain will just find these little points of insecurities to fixate on. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it, what our brain does to us? And, you know, uh, I just want to ask you a question about bullying, because that's something that I've been involved with in that work for over 10 years. And I've just found that mindfulness can really help people through some of these situations. And I'm just wondering if you ever were involved in a situation where you were bullied either as a child or an, an adult and where mindfulness would have made a difference? You know, I was thinking about that question because I knew that this has been an area that you've been exploring. And I I don't know. So there's one particular uh, moment or thing that recurred a few times for me. I used to take the bus to middle school. Yes. And there were these kids that would be on the bus prior to me getting on who actually didn't even go to my school. My bus made multiple stops at different schools. And so they didn't even go to my school. So the only time I encountered them was on the bus. And for whatever reason, these two boys decided that I was going to be the kid that they were going to mess with on the bus. And so no matter where they were sitting and where I would choose to sit, which was as far away from them as possible. Mm -hmm. They would always find a way to make it over to the seat right behind me and kick out whoever was sitting right behind me. And they would either take my hat off my head if it was winter time, or they would like hit me in the back of the head. And if I would try to ignore them, they would just get, you know, progressively more aggressive. If I would try to tell the bus driver, the bus driver would yell at them and it would have no effect. And I honestly don't know how many times this happened, but it, it happened multiple times. And it is was just horrible to the point where I would try to be late for school so that I would miss the bus and my mom would have to drive me. Right. Okay. <laughs> There's a strategy that makes sense. Right. So, so I thought about that situation and I, I, I was like, man, would mindfulness as a child in that situation have helped? And I don't honestly know the answer. The thing that did come to mind is the practice of metta or compassion. Uh-huh. And this is, you know, for your, for your listeners who may or may not know what this practice is, this is the practice of repeatedly saying four, usually four key short phrases that help you to tap into an awareness that other people have the same right to happiness that you do and that you have the same right to happiness as other people and tapping into an awareness of everyone's capacity for love and kindness, regardless of whatever behavior that person is exhibiting in the moment and regardless of whatever behavior you're exhibiting in the moment. And there's a part of me that wonders if, having that awareness or having that practice as a child would have, I don't think it would have stopped the bullying from happening, but I wonder if it would have decreased my own suffering around that. And I also see this, um, in my peace and play yoga, I teach 
yoga and music classes to very young children, as young as like one year old. And I see this in, in my classes with my like one and two year olds where I'm not sure that I would actually call it bullying at that stage, but you know, one and two year olds, they're, they're just trying to figure out how to be in the world with other people. It's sort of like they've just figured out that there actually are other people besides yes. them yes. <laughs> and they don't really know what to do with that. <laughs> and so you'll see that where like one kid has the finger puppet that the other kid wants. And so the other kid is, goes over to the first kid and just will like grab it. Right. Or will push the other kid down to get what they want. And certain kids have a tendency to more be more aggressive than others. And certain kids have a tendency to be more wild than others. And so definitely when I'm teaching those classes, I need to tap into that feeling of compassion, tap into my own breath so that instead of being like, oh, this one particular kid drives me nuts and I really hope he's absent from class today because he's really pushing my patience. I need to be able to recognize that this child is not a bad kid and he's, you know, he's going through his own process. And yes, there are probably some, you know, uh, some boundaries that need to be explored with him and there's some teaching that needs to be available. But if I can drop into my breath, see this child's capacity for love and kindness, even if he is exhibiting, I'm going to push down all of the kids and run around and yell at the top of my lungs because that's what I can do. <laughs> I can remain calm, bring that quality of calm and understanding and help diffuse the tension of the situation, especially with the other parents who might be present and bring some steady handedness rather than myself getting sucked into like panic or frustration over this child's behavior. Right. I think that's really a good way to, to think about it. You know, just think about this differently, you know, because otherwise it can be a very long year if you're dealing with this child every day and you dread it. Instead, there are different ways to deal with it, like you've described. With young children, sometimes there's this, this uh, tendency to drop into the habit of categorizing kids as being like, oh, this kid is so good and this kid is such a problem. And I think really using those mindfulness techniques to not default to categorizing kids in that way can be really effective. Yeah, I do too. Andrea, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who's one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Sean Johnson of Wild Lotus Yoga and the Wild Lotus Band in New Orleans. Sean is a musician, a yoga teacher, a meditator, and he has really helped me to uh, integrate storytelling, music, meditation, and mindfulness into a cohesive practice. Okay. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? <laughs> It's definitely helped me to not have so many peaks and valleys. And uh, I would say my first bout of depression that I ever had in my early 30s when I closed my first business, which was a yoga studio that I had for five years, it really helped me to recognize that depression was showing up for the first time ever in my life and be 
be able to experience it and move through it rather than getting sucked down into it. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Breathing is so important. When I originally was studying vocal music and studying classical music, we spend a lot of time in music classes learning how to breathe so that we can produce a certain quality of sound. And when I stopped studying music, I sort of lost that connection to my breath. And coming back to the meditation practice and back to the yoga practice, I was able to reconnect with that as the quickest tool to drop into when I find myself in a tricky situation. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would that be? I love How to Train a Wild Elephant by Jan Chosen Bays. It has 52 exercises, one for each week of the year, to help you develop a mindfulness habit. Anything as fun as using your non-dominant hand to do normal tasks throughout the day, like brushing your teeth to more serious uh, mindfulness exercises like working with your emotions. Cool. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? You know, I've tried a few different apps, and there's, there's, there's a few that I like, but there's none that I've really stuck with using consistently, except my podcast app. I have to be honest. I listen to podcasts all the time, and there are so many good podcasts including this one, about uh, meditation and mindfulness that really helped me stay in the mindfulness mode. Well, thanks for the shout out. That's great. What advice would you give someone who's new to this idea of mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? I would say to just resist the urge to get frustrated. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because I think that there's a, a tendency to feel like you're not doing it right or other people are doing it better than you or you're never going to be able to fit it in with all of the other things that you're doing. And if you can just acknowledge that right in that moment as you're having the awareness that you feel frustrated, that you've just become more mindful in that moment of having that awareness of frustration. So it's sort of like success. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's good advice, Andrea. And I just want to tell you, I just love your podcast. I think it's absolutely excellent. And you have such a great way of connecting with your listener and sharing really great information. But Andrea, how can Mindful Tribe learn more about you and how can we connect with you? The best place is thecreativeimposter.com and you can spell imposter with an O-R or an E-R at the end. Both spellings are legit and both spellings will get you to the right place. And also you can find me on Facebook. My page is andreaclunder.creative and yeah, connect with me either via Facebook, email or on my website. Okay, that sounds great. Well, I've enjoyed talking with you. You have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much, Bruce. You're welcome. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. 
stay in the mode.